listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. And you're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks, everyone, again for joining us for episode 238. Mark, is it true you really did 238 episodes? Not only have we done 238 episodes, Ryan, where's Paige? Well, clearly she's not sitting in my seat, so um, my voice is slightly deeper than hers. <laughs> slightly deeper. So Paige isn't feeling good. Ryan was kind enough to step in on the mic. Um, and before we get started with the show, Ryan, you have one of our newest shows on the network and you're killing it. Talk a little bit about your show. Well, thanks. Yeah, our show is called Journey to the Energy C-Suite. So we really focus on C-Suite issues. So it's really targeted for energy professionals and leaders who are interested in growing their career in energy. We've had some great guests on uh, over the last couple of months since we started the show. We have executive coaches, people who teach in business schools. We have current CEOs, former CEOs, board members, uh, thought leaders in, in the field of, of growing your career. So uh, it's taken off really nicely. We have great partners at the University of Oklahoma in the Price College of Business, and they have an EMBA program in energy, which um, is a really hot EMBA right now. And they're promoting that through our show. And it's been great to work with them at OGGN. Yeah. It's, and Ryan, you and I have known each other forever. And it was so awesome to have you join the family. And folks, we'll put a link in the show notes for Ryan's show. Go check it out. It is really, really worth listening to. You know what else is worth listening to, Ryan? I can't wait to hear. <laughs> Reviews. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. We got a great five-star review. Was looking to learn a little more about what's going on with the energy and, and all around the world. Th this was very educational. Thank you. Can't wait to tune in next time. What do you two think gas prices will reach by the end of the year? Everybody's worried about pump prices. Get your crystal ball out. <laughs> so... Uh, in the states that are heavily taxed, think uh, California, think East Coast, you're going to see $5 a gallon uh, this year uh, for gasoline. And the states that aren't as heavily taxed, which by the way, if, if, audience, if you don't know this, over half of what you pay at the pump goes to state and federal taxes, even if you're in a state like Texas, which doesn't tax as much. So next time you're paying about tax, your gas price at the pump, talk to your, your local representatives. Um, but, you know, we're hovering around $3 a, a gallon now, depending on where you are here in Texas. I don't see that going up. Um, we're going to switch to our winter blend right around October as, as a country. That'll give her a temporary bump up in prices, probably 10 cents a gallon for a couple of weeks until things settle down. So there's my, my crystal ball projections on what I think gasoline prices will be. Please, nobody make no investment uh, choices based on what I just rattled off. I do want to give a big shout out to aid. Uh, aid is, uh, uh, in, is a petroleum engineer, and uh, the Denmark Technology University was recently ranked one of the top uh, petroleum engineering universities in the world. And so I just think that's awesome. So if you're a petroleum engineer and you want to go study in Denmark, uh, we'll put Abe's uh, uh, contact information in the show. Just reach out to him and he'll be happy to help you. But congratulations, Abe, for, for that. That's quite an achievement. And now we're ready to get into questions. This is a first Friday Q&A. Uh, Ryan's filling in for Paige, so I can't wait to hear Ryan try to pronounce this first name. <laughs> you bring in the big guns for the hard for the hard names. We'll, we'll do our best with it, Mark. Bear with me. Rest assured, Paige will be back next week. But we do have a lot of great questions here today. Some, I think, some some really astute questions, and also some fun ones that we'll get into in a bit. But this comes from Ludwig Hoff. Very good. So Ludwig's a fan of the show. 
um, uh, ask his question every month. But anyway, go ahead and read his question. You did great with his name. <laughs> Close enough. A year to be so, able to pronounce it. So he says, I'm listening to my podcast backlog, including Peter Schiff. His firm manages my stock investments. Do you agree with him that oil will hit 100 USD a barrel? It is interesting as a thought. I'm not that certain. I would. It would mean massive shale going into production, but OPEC and Russia need it. Mark, what well, say you? What's cool about Ludwig is English is not his uh, native language, so he's done really good with this. He, he's also um, he, he also uh, sight impaired. And so the great thing about Ludwig is sometimes he takes really good pictures, which is cool for somebody that can't see the pictures wow. themselves. But he's a big fan of the show. So Ludwig, um, I'm afraid it will hit $100 a barrel. So the, the the fear, when I say that it's genuine, is right above $80 a barrel is when it starts becoming uh, – financially profitable for the the unconventionals in the u.s think the shell plays to actually go in production and the problem is global consumption has not come back yet so even though oil is around 72 dollars a barrel right now once we hit 80 and go above 80 u.s will increase production which i'm worried that will flood the market and then i'm worried we'll be back to 20 dollars a barrel at a hundred dollars a barrel that is absolutely gonna happen and what's going on in the middle east right now all it takes is for a little skirmish to, to heat up somewhere in the Middle East, and we're going to see oil top 80, maybe even 100, maybe even higher than that. I don't want it to happen. It's not good for the industry. Um, do I agree with Peter that it's going to hit $100 a barrel? I would unfortunately probably say he's probably about a 70% chance that he's going to be right about that. Don't want it to happen. Want it to stay below 80, but uh, we'll see. So Tom Tom Jacobson uh, has also written in a question. He says, would you guys consider having more episodes or having a daily show on the network? This industry has a fast-paced news cycle, and most of your episodes are outdated by the time they're released. Sometimes you never or briefly cover the biggest stories. And less talk about T-shirts, more part. oil and gas stories. <laughs> read it. Go ahead. He says, I've literally never heard anyone pimp a t-shirt more in my entire life. Mark, are you really selling that many t-shirts? We're not selling me t-shirts, Tom. The thing is, this show costs money like all of our shows. So uh, pimping the t-shirts, I think, is a better than actually having advertisement, having commercials to ruin the show. Um, you know, I have a, co a company right now, Tom, of about 24 individuals that work for me in marketing, production, editing, videographers, hosts like Ryan. And we got to pay all these people. So, um, you know, if, if the T-shirt thing bothers you, just take note that it could be much worse. I could be pimping, you know, Lord knows what on the show, which we don't do. And, and also the shirt is actually super valuable and we give it away for free. We're not even selling it. So uh, sorry, Tom, about the T-shirts, but they're not going anywhere. That's, that's what pays the bills. So Zach from Baker Hughes has written in, he says, Paige and Mark, thank you for always providing great content and keeping us informed. Shout out to the editing team for a job well done. And I have a few questions. Number one, I've been researching which company holds the record for the deepest land well in North America. And my sources so far point me to ConocoPhillips at about 37,000 feet TD as of 2020. Do you know anybody at ConocoPhillips who can confirm this, this depth? So that is legitimate, a record. And yes, I do. And uh, Zach, if you reach out to me directly, I'll be happy to share some contact information with somebody at ConocoPhillips that can, um, can, can confirm this. It was, it was quite a, quite an accomplishment. And the other thing, Zach, they did it relatively quickly. That's people don't talk about that, but yep, that's real. All right. His second question says one item on my bucket list is I visit all the oil and gas museums in the country. I started in California two years ago in Anaheim 
Didn't do any travel last year due to the lockdown. This summer, the wife and kids will be joining me so we can visit all the museums in Oklahoma, Texas, and Louisiana. So far, I can only find one museum in the state of Louisiana, the International Petroleum Museum in Morgan City. Do you guys know or have any recommendations for places or exhibits to visit in Louisiana besides the one in Morgan City? Ryan, you're also from Louisiana, aren't you? I forgot about that. Yeah, I'm almost from Texas. I'm, I'm from the Lake Charles area. So they, Louisiana doesn't quite claim Calcasieu Parish very often. Yeah. So, Zach, one of the things you need to check out is the uh, um, the museum, the oil museum in uh, Galveston, Texas. It's actually on a jackup rig. So it's an old jackup rig um, when they before they had uh, top drive. So it's really cool because uh, all the old equipment's there. So that's one place you have to go. The other things you talked about California and Bakersfield, they have an incredible museum. It's small. You ought to go check that one out. In Louisiana, in uh, downtown New Orleans and Poydras Street, before Katrina, they used to have an oil and gas museum. I do know that it was closed uh, from the hurricane, and I don't know if it was ever reopened. And if it was reopened, I don't know where. So if any of listeners know about that uh, museum in Louisiana, let us know, and I'll be, make sure I'll get that information out to Zach. But Zach, appreciate you being a listener. So John Gates writes in, and John's from HDR. He says, what do you think of this merger of Bonanza and extraction in Colorado? And their goal to be the first carbon neutral ENP firm. Um, what do you think, Mark? Yeah. So that word carbon neutral honestly means nothing. I, I get it. It's a, it's a math thing, right? How much carbon do you, uh, produce? How much carbon can you pull out, uh, pull out the atmosphere or and sequester? And if those numbers equal, then you're, you're carbon zero. That is really not how it works. This is a bit of greenwashing. Now, at the same time, because the world is really concerned about things like ESG and carbon emissions, they will absolutely um, start working on reducing their CO2 footprint, like all operators are right now. Uh, you're seeing some big operators like Shell even go to the extreme of divesting themselves of assets just so they don't have that carbon footprint from that asset. So, um, you know, there's another part of this, and I've talked about this a bunch on the different shows, in the fact that that carbon sequestration, especially if you do it in a reservoir, which is a good place to store carbon, you can then use that carbon to add energy to the oil in that reservoir, um, and it allows you to increase production. So it's not just a matter of getting carbon out of the air for ESG metrics. It also can be used for wealth stimulation to make money. So yeah, they're absolutely going down this route. Pay real close attention to what Oxy's doing. Also pay real close attention to what Chevron's doing in the Permian. Everybody's going down this route, and it's going to be interesting to see, because long-term wise, I think you're seeing the, the very beginning beginning the very birth of a new industry, which is going to be the carbon dioxide management, which is nobody's core competency. So I can see companies standing up that do nothing but manage and track carbon dioxide emissions for the operators. It'd be another profit, another business model in the industry, which I think would be kind of cool. Interesting stuff there. Dustin writes in, Dustin is a lease operator. He says, curious if y'all see another major boom such as in 2018 for shale, or do you think investors and oil companies will be conservative with the memory of April 2020 still fresh? Do you think generating cash flow will trump the desire to punch a, a bunch of wildcat holes if prices stay up? Yes, <laughs> doesn't answer your question. What's happened is the investment community in oil and gas has decided that it wants profit over growth. Since 20, really since 2010, the investment community in oil and gas has been investing money uh, to have operators go in production. That production is then used to raise more money. So they go to the next well. To your point, they start punching holes in the ground, right? And that was a business model that led up to the, the downturn of, of 2014, 2015. And that's what brought us into the the horrible situation, the double black swan affair of, of, of 2020. So um, 
the money out there has been greatly constrained. I mean, I have my finger on this. I see it and talk to these people all the day. But there is investors out there, but they're looking for companies that can make a profit. So um, you can see that trickle through and change the business model of a lot of those more independent uh, operators out there. Uh, the very small independent operators, quite unfortunately, because of this new business model, probably aren't going to make it. They're going to need to merge or acquire other small independent operators. So they're mid-sized operators. And those are the ones that if they have good properties and they know what they're doing and they can uh, make a profit, will get investment money. So I don't think we're going to see another boom like we did for shale because that was a bubble. But I, there is money to be made out there. And honestly, this is a better business model. This this keeps people employed. This keeps taxes being paid. You know, we, we want the business to be profitable because if not, eventually it disappears for one reason or another. So Rogelio Garcia writes in, uh, Rogelio is a graduate researcher at the University of Arkansas. He says, hi guys, I have a question. What classifies as an active rig to be counted by Baker Hughes weekly rig count? The last time I checked, the U.S. had 456 rigs, which seems a low number to me. The other day I drove through, through Kansas and saw several active pump jacks which made me think that the 456 number was a bit too low. Are rigs only offshore, offshore oil platforms? I love your show. Keep up with the amazing work, you guys. So, Rielo, um, a pump jack is what is put in place after they drill the well to produce the well. Basically, it's pulling the oil out of the ground, typically pushing it in a pipeline, typically pushed in some storage somewhere where it's hauled off by rail or truck or maybe even other pipelines. And so the pump jacks are not a rig. So when you talk about the Baker Hughes rig count, that is not pump jack count. That's literally operating rigs and what counts as being operating by baker hughes is really simple so the rig has to be stacked so you may not know this but the rigs on land are very mobile and the newer ones are more mobile than the older ones and so some of the newer rigs drive themselves to the site to the new site and until that rig has all the parts and pieces assembled on it and it's fully functional, it's not considered stacked and it's not counted by Baker Hughes. Once they bolt all the parts and pieces onto that rig and it's ready to drill, even if it's not drilling, then it counts as an active rig. While they're drilling, it counts as an active rig. And on, a, on one well site, you may have three or four different rigs come in that do different jobs. Everything from the rig that does the completion to work over to, you know, wireline. So on one job site, you may have several rigs over the course of time working there, and each one of those rigs would be counted independently. And when those rigs are ready to move to the next job and they start breaking them down, then they stop counting them as an active rig. So that, that should make a lot of sense to you. And in the Baker Hughes rig count counts all rigs, so offshore rigs and onshore rigs. So, so hopefully, uh, Rohilo, that helps you uh, with that question. All right. Next question here. Uh, this comes from the PetroMod at the Petrotech subreddit. This is the moderator from the, the Reddit su subform there. Um, first of all, they say, uh, thanks, uh, Mark and Paige. We love Mark's accent and Paige's mischievous laugh. <laughs> it always has them coming back. So I don't know what to say about <laughs> that. Um, but it is, I guess it is a compliment. What's cool about this, Ryan, this is the first time we've ever had somebody from Reddit reach out to us. Um, not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I do appreciate you reaching out. And then what he also did um, um, is they also reached out through the web form. So we got a little bit deeper question. Yeah. So what they're asking is um, um, what's going on in the Utah sands after 10 years. And so what's going on there is there's hydrocarbons there that are recoverable. The infrastructure is there so we can bring it to market. There's actually a history, an old history of Utah and the crude they produce there is actually very low sulfur, which is very valuable. What's happening though is 
price. So we're at 70 some odd dollars today. It's not quite where it needs to be for people in that basin to go in production. They need a high 70s, 78, $79 for a decent length of time. And like I said earlier, I think we're going to hit 80 dollars pretty soon. I hope we don't go over that. When we hit 80, Utah's going to start picking back up. But unfortunately, you have the state government in Utah, and there's a bunch of bills in place, um, the usual deal where there are organizations and groups that don't like what we do trying to stop any hydrocarbon productions in Utah. Uh, right now, it looks like they're not going to be able to stop a lot of it, um, but all they need is to stop a little bit, and that's a win on their side, which they're going to build upon. So if if the Reddit group there is involved in Utah in any way, make sure you pay attention to local politics and make sure you get out and vote. Um, it's one of the best things you can actually do. And then I really like the last part, Ryan, of the question where they say, um, thanks for great work and hopefully you can get Greenpeace on your show. <laughs> so uh, maybe they'll show up Zodiacs. Um, Greenpeace, if you're listening, please, I would love to have you on this show. I would love to talk to y'all. It's um, We're not that far apart. We have some basic things that we disagree upon, but I'd love to talk about the stuff we do agree upon. So anybody Greenpeace wants to come on one of our shows, just reach out and let me know. Absolutely. And also some well wishes for Paige. So that's always appreciated. Um, another question here from Anonymous. Uh, my question is, with some banks leaving the RBL business and many others being more conservative, private equity fundraising for upstream oil and gas shrinking and capital markets being more selective, what will the future of raising upstream energy capital look like? Have we truly hit a new normal in upstream financing or do you think this is like the other downturns and everyone will return to financing upstream projects? So the, the, we talked about this earlier, the financing model has changed. It used to be um, investors threw money at growth, and now they realize that's not a good business model. And so you would think that since that disappeared, that's going to hurt the capital markets and oil and gas. But you're also seeing new uh, groups come in like energy funders where they're, they're uh, fractional investments for wells. So typically, if you wanted to invest in a well here in the U.S., I, I think minimal, I mean minimal, would probably be $100,000 of your personal money before you could be allowed to invest. And more likely, they're looking for 200, 300, half a million or so. Well, now with fractional investing, you can invest 50 bucks. And your 50 bucks combined with, you know, a thousand other people's 50 bucks is now invested into an operating property to a well. So you can see some different type of financing come in. You've seen the SPACs come in, right, which is a different way to model taxes and financing. So so the money out there to be invested always finds a way to get into the market. And then the people that invest it learn because what they're looking for is return. So as long as the upstream part of our house can can contribute to returns, we will always have investment dollars in the house. Um, it may be different than what we're used to. It may come from somewhere else. Um, it may actually come from outside the country. It may come from cryptocurrency. But as long as we can show a return, we'll continue to have investing. But that world is changing. All right. Sarah Bixby writes her question, and she's from Kinder Morgan. She says, hey, Mark and Paige, I love your show. Have been a fan for years. What is your opinion on the future of live events in oil and gas? Will we be going back to how it was before the COVID pandemic or are live events over with? They're not over with, uh, Sarah. In fact, we did our first one last month, and it was an overwhelming success. And then, Ryan, you may not even know this because I haven't talked to you. But we have sold out all our live events here in Houston until March of 2022. And that's without me putting it on the market. That's just the people that come to our, the companies that came to our live events, liked it, saw how much uh, activity we had and how valuable it was, and they wanted to sponsor live events. So they are definitely coming back. But Sarah, they're coming back differently. Uh, we have OTC next month. I'm really looking forward to see what that show's going to look like. I think it's going to be extremely small compared to last OTCs. And I think a lot of the value will not be at OTC itself. It'll be 
Adobe and all the stuff that goes around OTC, I think it's a new business model. So the events themselves are coming back, but I think they're going to come back different. And quite honestly, I think they're going to come back better. Um, the, the event space in oil and gas was slowly dying a death of a thousand paper cuts. I mean, if you think about OTC, when's the last time you saw a major operator there? It's been 20 years, right? Um, but, but, but they're definitely coming back. And at least here in Houston, um, people are dying to get back in person. They, they miss seeing each other. And it's, um, it's more than an event. It's, it's the community, right? So the community of oil and gas people just want to get together and, and network. And so it's, it's coming back. So it looks like you're in marketing at Kinder Morgan, um, I don't. I wouldn't spend big dollars on any events for this year. I would spend small dollars on events this year just to get a feel for it. But I suspect by 2022, Sarah, the world will be back to normal. Just the events are going to be different. I think they're actually going to be more valuable. If you want to stick your toe in the water for some live in-person events, I highly recommend the OGGN Happy Hour coming up on July 29th. Good plug, Ryan. Yeah, I'll be there. Damn good plug. I, I was at the last one. It was great. Met a lot yeah. of great folks. Great panel discussion, as always, and uh, some some good food and, and, and drinks as well. So it was a good time. Yeah. Uh, next question. So John Morton, who is an operations director at Cabot Oil and Gas, writes: You were my first podcast that I ever listened to after a buddy of mine suggested it. I've uh, been a huge fan ever since. Paige, what's going on in Oklahoma with the governor signing bills on who regulates the oil and gas industry? So since Paige isn't here, Mark, I'm going to let you pinch it. Yeah. So what's happened in Oklahoma is it's the same organization that's regulated the oil and gas industry. The governor just signed some laws enforcing their regulatory ability. So it's not like the regulatory agency has changed in Oklahoma. The governor is just making sure that legally they have the power they need to do uh, quite frankly, to, to push back on the federal government. Uh, you're seeing Texas do it. You're seeing Louisiana do it. You're seeing Oklahoma do it. You know, the, the bans on drilling hurts these states' revenue and it hurts their tax base, hurts their schools. And so the governors of these states are like, look, we've had enough. And so that's what's going on here is it's just really the, the governor themselves giving more teeth to, to their in-state a regulatory organization. So if they need to push back against the federal government, they can. So no worries yet about what's going on in Oklahoma. And I, I don't know if his second question is, is related to his first or not, but he says, Mark Glock, 43, 23, or 17. So Ryan, and what is this guy's name, John? I don't know if I should admit this. I have every one of those guns. <laughs> I have a Glock 43, I have a Glock 23, I have a Glock 17. Shocking, um, shocking. <laughs> so the Glock 43 is my everyday carry. It's a single stack, nine millimeter. It's easy to conceal. Got a lot of punch. Um, the 17 is what I keep by my nightstand, nine um, millimeter, double stack, a lot of firepower. The 23 is kind of in between. It's a 40 caliber, so more punch, but it's harder to conceal. So, John, depending on what I'm wearing, it, I picked the the firearm to, to, to be able to be concealed. And, and I'm legal here in Texas, folks. I, we have a, a concealed weapon permit. Um, but it's just bizarre, Ryan, that do I know you, John? Like, or is that, there's no way that was luck. So I don't think I've <laughs> talked much about firearms in the show before, but good question, John. Yeah. And then, and John had a nice little comment at the end. He says, guys, keep turning it on to the right. Uh, our next, will. our next question here from Allison Gotro. I know how to pronounce that name. I, I did grow up with a lot of folks that had EAUX at the end of their name. So, uh, so Alice, the company. Uh, this, yeah, give me a little, give me a little, uh, leeway here. So Allison is actually the vice president of human resources at Edison Schaust off, offshore. Did I, did I butcher that Mark? Yeah, you did butcher it's Edison Schwest, but pretty close. Schwest. Okay. Yeah. Way off. Uh, minus, minus five for me. Um, but her question is, what is your opinion on the best way to attract talent to our industry? We have, we are having issues hiring 
And what we used to do, what used to work, newspaper ads, monster job boards, et cetera, no longer does. Also, let us know about the crawfish boil you mentioned a few shows ago. We would love to host it with you and provide the cooks, the boiling rig, tons of cold beer, and if you don't mind making a trip down to Louisiana. Are you a crawfish eater, Ryan? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, me too. So, Allison, me and Ryan may just, and Paige may just take you up on this. <laughs> um, that's going to be, if three of us show up, that's probably 30 pounds of crawfish you need to boil. Um, so, Ryan, this is actually right in your sweet spot. You want to talk about this a little bit? Yeah, it is a great question. And, and it's it's funny. I was actually just uh, recording one of my episodes a couple of hours ago with, with one of my guests, and we talked about this. Um, you know, there, there is a, a perception out there that, that for, for younger employees, you know, is this uh, the right industry for me to pursue at this point? You know, is it, we, we even asked kind of a provocative question, you know, is oil and gas on its last legs as far as a, you know, a viable career path for young professionals. And I, th- I think my, my answer, I'll be, I'll be interested to hear your perspective on this too, Mark, but I, I think it's really about telling the story, younger employees to attract these younger employees. They do want to understand not just what are you doing, um, but how are you going to make this a place that I could grow my career? It's not just a job, but I also want to know what is your company doing to make the world a better place? So that if I'm going to put my stake in the ground with your company, I can actually see um, what we're doing um, to make these communities uh, better places to live, a place that I'm going to be proud to work. And I think a lot of companies are starting to do that. I know a lot of, a lot of our shows on the oil and gas global network have emphasized that, um, but there's a lot of work to be done. As you know, Mark, we, we've got to be out there telling the story about the great things that oil and gas and all the related companies uh, are doing um, to that end. Yeah, yeah, all great points. I, I think I'm going to go a little bit more uh, tactical on this for Allison because um, she mentioned that newspaper ads, monster job boards, et cetera. Allison, I, I think you ought to take the initiative and start telling the story of Edison Swest on LinkedIn, on social media. Don't talk about wanting to hire in the position you're looking for. Talk about the day-to-day stuff. I know for a fact that y'all have multi-generations working there. You know, how cool is it when grandfather, father, and son or daughter all work in the same company? That tells you it's a good place to work. I think if you start sharing the stories of your company and why it's a great place to work and how you have good career path advancement, um, you know, how you take care of each other. It's like a family, how you're willing to boil crawfish for strangers. I think that's going to attract people to you. But to Ryan's point, you also have to talk about the reality of hiring this new generation, no matter how much you pay them and how well you take care of them, no, they're probably not going to stay with you forever like older generations. They're more in it for the experience and the actual pay. Um, they like to know career path advancement. You know, So, so I, I think if you tweak uh, your tactical stuff, start telling your story on social media, specifically LinkedIn, and then you know, make sure that when you bring in new hires, you talk about their career path, talk about advancement, talk about how y'all give back. I think that'll help you start picking up people. The problem, Ryan, I don't know if you know this or not, but right now, any type of skilled labor in the U.S. is in unbelievably hard to come by. Everything from deckhands to welders to pipe fitters. So, Allison, you're in a competitive market. It's um, you know, you may 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 need some help. And actually, Allison, I'm always suggesting maybe you reach out to Ryan outside of this and have a conversation with him. Yeah, that I would love to. That that would be uh, an interesting conversation. Certainly have uh, some some additional thoughts on that. But um, it, it's not a unique uh, problem. To, to, to this company. Uh, as Mark said, it's definitely something that's happening industry-wide with skilled labor in the shortage. I think you're going to see a lot more public and private partnerships over the next several years around some of these skilled labor um, initiatives and things like that to make sure that we have enough workers to do the work that needs to be done. So next, next question, it's from uh, Matt Silva, who is a business developer at Chevron. Mark and Paige love the show. Congrats on millions and millions of downloads. Best oil and gas podcast out there. 
millions and millions. Hey, we're not stopping until that says billions and billions. Yep. Can Okay, here's the question. Can y'all please help me understand the Biden administration's energy policy? How much time do we have here, Mark? <laughs> right, right out the gate, they are aggressively anti-hydrocarbon energy, cutting leases on federal land and pulling the Keystone Pipeline permit, just to name a few policies. The adver- this adversely impacted North American energy companies and cost jobs. Now energy prices are rising and everyday consumers are feeling the pain. In response, in response the Biden administration is urging OPEC to increase oil production. My question, why is the administration encouraging foreign countries to drill versus domestic oil companies? Does it have to do with heavy versus light crude? What am I missing? So Matt, I think we've met. Your name is super familiar. I think we've met. I don't know where or how. Um, and if we haven't met, we've definitely engaged uh, on social media somewhere, but really good question. So a couple things. I'm right there with you, bud. Um, this is this is ridiculous. So the U.S. burns 20 million barrels a day, if you don't know that. No matter what happens, we're going to continue to burn 20 million barrels a day. And we have a choice as a country. We can get that oil, th- those hydrocarbons out of the ground environmentally responsibly uh, on our own land, or we can let other countries do it. And Ryan, have you ever heard of a Russian or Chinese oil spill? <laughs> No. No, you haven't, have you? No, I haven't. Yeah. And the reason you haven't is one of two reasons. Number one, they're either better at this than we and the Europeans are. So they're either better at it than Exxon and Shell is, or they don't tell when they have an accident. And I'm telling you right now. Couldn't be, that, couldn't be that, Mark. Come on. <laughs> yeah. And so so if if what's happened at the Biden administration is they're hurting our own production, and then they're asking OPEC to increase production to keep the cost of the pump low so the general population won't revolt. Because regardless of what side you're on politically here in the U.S., when the pump price gets too high, people want to change. And so this is everything you can think of that not only is it anti-American, it's also very bad for their environment. You're asking other countries, you're asking the Middle East and Russia to increase production to feed our need for hydrocarbons, which we have ourselves under our feet. And it's, 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 this is literally ridiculous. And the reason Matt brought up the heavy versus light crude is that Certain parts of the world, Venezuela, Canada, the Middle East, produce a very heavy sour crude, which is a complex oil to refine. And we're one of the few countries that can refine it. We get a great yield. And then we produce a very sweet light crude here in our, in our unconventionals, especially, which is ridiculously easy to refine. So we ship that to other countries like South America, where they don't have the technology. Uh, um, they don't have the refiners with the technology capacity we have here. So it's really win-win for everybody when when this is allowed to function like it should. But with the uh, current administration stepping in, um, you know, stopping leases on federal land and uh, other things, it is not good for anybody except for the current political administration here in the U.S. So that's what's going on with that, Matt. It has nothing to do with heavy and light crude. It's, it's literally a political play that's not good for us. It's not good for the world, not good for the environment. Uh, let's hope somebody with common sense at some point steps in and helps <laughs> change this. All right. I think this is the the last question we had, Mark. This is, comes from Cameron. And is this Chala Petroleum? Am I pronouncing that correctly? That's how I would pronounce it. Chala Petroleum. Uh, and Cameron asks, well, he says, I'm a young professional who has been working on the land side for a private E&P company for the last two years. I plan on attending my first AAPL conference in Santa Fe at the end of July in preparation for this. What are some books, articles, et cetera, that I can review in the next coming week so that it'll allow me to be more engaging and impressionable in my conversations at this conference and will ultimately leave a good reputation uh, on my company's part? 
So I had reached out to Cameron uh, before the show and, and sent him the same stuff I'm getting rattle off here. But if I was a young landman and I was going to a landman conference, um, I'd want to be able to cover the basics intelligently. So not too deep. You're young. People realize that you don't have 30 years of experience. But start off with oil and gas and uh, law in a nutshell. Um, the link, by the way, everybody, that I'm, everything I'm saying right now, people, the links are in the show notes. Then the next one go is the Landman Survival Guide. And even um, though I'm not in that Landman world, I've actually read that book because there's some funny stuff in it. it is, it's funny because it's true. Um, and then I would look at the Independent Petroleum Landman uh, book. That's a, a more of a business book for Landman, but it also gives you um, a bunch of insider information on how the dollar flows. And then I actually got a link to a YouTube channel for professional landman schools. So Cameron, if, if you can pick up a couple of those books, watch some of those videos, you should be very prepared to go to your conference and, and, and wow other people out there. Uh, great stuff. A lot of good resources there, Mark. Um, I think that was our last question here. Yep. Speaking of great resources, uh, one of our partners is the Canon, which is a, a co-working sp uh, space here in Houston. And so if any of our listeners want a place to stop in and work a little bit for free, the Canon's doing our listeners a big favor. Uh, all you do is, is show up at the Canon, go to the front desk, mention us, OGGN, and they'll give you a free day pass so you can work there. Um, and Ryan, if you want to get out of the house, <laughs> you can go to the Canon too and go hang out for a free day pass up there. Love the Canon. Love the Canon. They're, they're great people. They really are. And it's, it's a phenomenal space. That's where we have all our Houston happy hours because there's just so much character in that room and they're such great partners with us. Also, if you want a chance to win this t-shirt that somebody earlier was complaining about, I'm going to pimp it again. Uh, sign up now. It's a really awesome shirt. I got IBM's logo on one shoulder, our logo on the other shoulder, uh, a unique serial number on the breast pocket with a picture of an antique pump jack print on the front. Uh, we're going to give away some really cool stuff based on those numbers. Those shirts are instantly collectible. Each one has a, a, a unique number. Register every week, folks. If you don't register, if you don't win one week, you totally can register for the next week. So get those shirts. We'll be doing some cool stuff with it. And then, like Ryan mentioned, we have our next Houston Happy Hour. It's the very last Thursday of this month, which is the is that the twenty eighth, Ryan? Twenty ninth, I believe. Twenty ninth. Uh, the details are already out on all our socials. So Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, go sign up. It's a nominal fee. I think it's twenty bucks. Um, and the the profits we make get donated to Red M Fight Human Sex Trafficking. So the, it's a good time. Plus the money goes to a good place. Then go up to LinkedIn. If you haven't joined any of our groups, just search OGGN and just click uh, join. Um, if you want to be part of our street team, which is all volunteer group, uh, check out the OGGN street team. Uh, we just got swag in. Uh, we got laptop stickers, hard tap stickers, and shirts going out to the street team. So if you want to fly the OGG and street team colors, you better hurry up and go sign up. And then this is the first Friday Q&A. Uh, we'd love your questions. And if we uh, read your question on the air, you'll get a big shout out like you heard me do. Uh, very simple. Either go to oilandgasthisweek.com or OGGN.com. Click on ask a question, submit the question. And if we read it, you'll get a big shout out. Then if you want myself or Ryan or any of our team members to come speak at your event, that's starting to pick back up for us. Let us know. We'll be happy to share the details. All right, Ryan, you ready to get out of here? Oh, I'm ready. I'm ready to start the weekend, Mark. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, man. This was really, really fun. All right. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.